Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment. I check all the feedback myself, and it's really rewarding to hear from so many of you each time I put out a new episode. It really validates the hard work that goes into producing the show, researching the show, and putting everything together. And so it's nice to know that it brightens so many of your days whenever I'm able to put together a new show. And I know that it's been an extra couple weeks here between episodes. I do apologize for that. But with the Thanksgiving holiday and a couple of guests falling through at the last minute, it was tough to put one together uh, in the latter parts of November. But I really think you're going to enjoy today's show. Our guest is Norm Chow, the great offensive coordinator Norm Chow. And Norm is a guy who I wanted to have on this program for quite a while because he is the absolute definition of a football lifer. His coaching career began way back in 1970 at the high school level, and he was coaching all the way through the XFL when it got shut down by the pandemic. So he is just an absolute football lifer whose career has spanned 50 years. Of course, the majority of those 50, 27 of them, came at BYU under the great Lavelle Edwards. Uh, He was the play caller there for 18 of those 27 seasons, the final 18, and that included coaching a Heisman Trophy winner in Ty Detmer and winning a national title in 1984. He then went on to North Carolina State for one year, where his quarterback was none other than the true freshman Phillip Rivers, and they put together an 8-4 and record that season with Phillip Rivers throwing for 3,054 yards, 25 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions as a true freshman with Norm calling the plays. He then spent four years at Southern California under the great Pete Carroll, winning two more national titles, one in 2003, one in 2004, and then coaching two more Heisman Trophy winners, one being Carson Palmer and the other being Matt Leinart. From there, he jumped to the NFL, and he was the offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans for three years under Jeff Fisher. Uh, With Vince Young in 2006, he oversaw a Rookie of the Year, and Vince was the first rookie QB to reach the Pro Bowl. And he also had a chance to work with the great Steve McNair for one year during his first season with the Tennessee Titans. He wrapped up the back part of his career with three seasons as the offensive coordinator at UCLA, one year as the offensive coordinator at Utah, and the head coach at Hawaii for four years before dipping his toe back into the high school level, and then, as I mentioned, joining the Los Angeles XFL franchise, where he worked alongside Winston Moss, the head coach, and defensive coordinator Jerry Glanville. And Jerry, of course, was our inaugural guest on the Cohen's Corner podcast, so if you're interested in hearing that, feel free to check it out. The amazing thing about Norm Chow, and I was thinking about this as I did some of the research for the show, is I can't really think of too many guys who have worked with a better group of quarterbacks and had more success with those quarterbacks than Norm Chow did. Think about the guys that he coached over the course of his career. Jim McMahon, Steve Young, Robbie Bosco, Ty Detmer, Philip Rivers, Carson Palmer, Matt Castle, Matt Leinart, Steve McNair, Vince Young. As I mentioned, three of those guys won Heisman trophies. That's Ty Detmer, Carson Palmer, and Matt Leinart. And two of them won national titles with Chow, one being Robbie Bosco at BYU and the other being Matt Leinart during his time at USC. And so you just think about the remarkable success and the remarkable talents that Norm Chow has worked with, nurtured, developed, and been around. And I just knew that he was going to be a great 
podcast guest, and he absolutely delivered. So without further ado, I hope you guys really enjoy this episode, and let's get into a terrific conversation with the great offensive coordinator, Norm Chow. Well, Norm, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate you carving out a little bit of your day to uh, come on to the podcast. I've really wanted to connect with you for quite some time because, you know, always from afar, we've never met before, but always from afar, I really admired all the work that you've done with quarterbacks and offenses at all different kinds of levels, all different teams. And so this is going to be a lot of fun and I'm really excited. And, you know, for somebody that has coached at different levels like you have and you know the grind and all the effort that goes into it, I got to ask you when you flip on the television now either for pro or college or whatever the case may be and you see some of your friends or even some of your former players trying to navigate this crazy season as coaches what goes through your mind well you 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 really feel for the guys um you know i i i stay in touch with a lot of them for example uh uh, a dear friend that coaches at utep university of texas el paso that you know el paso's having a tough time and he said it's just it's just awkward. You can't plan, you can't prepare because you just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. So you feel for these guys, and and then um, it almost looks like um, you know spring ball. And I mentioned that to one of the fellows, and that's what he said. That's the way they felt as well. And the sad part is, is you know they're still firing coaches. You can't judge a coach on a on a, on a season like this with all the you know obviously all the craziness that's going around. Yeah, I agree. I mean, all you had to do was turn on the the Ravens-Steelers game recently, and you look at what Baltimore had to deal with, and they've got, you know, basically two-thirds of a roster, and then one-third guys that they had to sign off the practice squad or off the street just to get ready for a game. And, you know, certainly for those guys that are getting an opportunity for the first time, the players, that is, you're happy for them to have a chance, but it's under such unique circumstances and such strange circumstances that, you know, like you said, it's it's very difficult, I think, to hold anybody accountable for for these types of seasons and so we'll have to see how it plays out but I guess from a player's perspective especially at the college level it's nice at least that they get this season in some capacity because you know they they don't have the opportunity to just keep going and going and going the way professional athletes do they've got a limited number of time to finish their collegiate careers and so from that perspective I got to imagine the players are at least happy that they're out there well yeah sure Mike but but also keep in mind that um you know they're not going to lose their eligibility right so um, you know if, if if you were a freshman and I'm a senior next year I'm still a senior and you're still a freshman from what I understand so that gives them a little bit of comfort you know a little bit of breathing room if you will and but I think it makes it awfully hard on college coaches because what do you do about recruiting you know normally you lose 20 seniors and you bring in 20 freshmen but now you don't know which seniors are going to leave you don't know how many freshmen you can bring in you know, it's it just creates so many problems. I, I I talked to one friend of mine. He says the biggest thing they worry about is lockers. You know, they they don't have enough room for everybody if everybody comes back. So you know that makes it tough. And then when you talked about Baltimore, how about Denver the other night? Yeah, I I made sure I tuned in on that one just a little bit. I'm not a big football watcher. I'm a score watcher, and I you know I like to watch bits and pieces of games, but. You know, you just felt for the for the Denver coaches, for Fangio and those guys. They, you know, they how can you go in thinking you have much of a chance? You know, because you can't talk, throw the ball around, third down situations, all that. It's hard, man. 
I, I feel for these guys. I mean, what what would that be like as a coach? You know, how hamstrung would you be with 24 hours to prepare and all of a sudden, you know, the first person that trots out there is, is a running back in the Wildcat and then, you know, you have a, a player who hasn't played quarterback in three years, you know, off your practice squad and all of a sudden he's got to try and throw passes. I mean, that's got to be, it's just got to be ridiculous. Oh, yeah, it, it, it has to be. And, you know, and the first series, sure enough, well, maybe they second series or whatever, you know, it gets to be third and three, and they, they bring in the quarterback that hadn't played, like you said, and they expect him to make a play. I mean, come on, you know, defenses are so good, so sophisticated nowadays that, that it makes it hard for those guys. And, and who, who you know, you, you can't. That's why, you know, when I see where coaches get fired, it, it, it's crazy. Why would you do that? You know, whose fault is that? It's not theirs. They don't have an all of a sudden got dumb just because the the, 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 the virus hit, you know? Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. Um, yeah, you know, it really is. It really is. You know, we could go on talking about, you know, the craziness of this situation for probably the length of the show, but you have so much great experience and so many awesome players and coaches that you've worked with that I definitely want to pick your brain a little bit about, you know, some of your experience over what, you know, essentially amounted to a 50-year career. Just, just remarkable. And so <laughs> I guess the first question I have for you is, you know, when you think about, you know, first getting started and, and coaching high school in Hawaii in 19. 1970 does it does it really feel like 50 years ago you know you know it, unfortunately it really doesn't and then uh, there were some some awfully fond memories and but everything has gone by so quickly you know and and uh, uh that that that's that's a part of it i guess and, and the game has changed yet it hasn't changed so you know like i say you still followed but i've been very blessed very fortunate worked with some good coaches some good players and and you know, have nothing but good memories as, as as you look back over the years. You know, the tremendous run that you had of 27 years at BYU for Lavelle Edwards, just a, you know, a legendary head coach. And honestly, I think one that because of the recency bias of fans and, and everybody that watches sports, not just football, I don't think Lavelle Edwards gets quite as much respect and reverence as, as he deserves. Can you kind of talk about what BYU was like at that time and how you guys built it into such a, a tremendous program there in the 70s, 80s? And, and beyond. Well, you're, you're right about Lavelle. He, he deserves a lot of credit uh, for, you know, for really uh, the, the past game, you know, kind of got all got, not not started, uh, obviously, but just kind of perpetuated or magnified, if you will, because, you know, he often told the story that, that when he first took over, BYU had not won games many games that he was trying to find some way to, to make it relevant. And he decided, you know, to start throwing the ball more than, than people have done it in the past. And I think that kind of revolutionized college football throwing. And I, I don't revolutionize might be too strong of a word, but it certainly brought it to the forefront, you know, because everybody's doing it now. And, and, and uh, as, as he used to do, you know, Mike Leach, Mike Leach and, and Hal Mummy used to hang out at BYU when they were first getting started, you know, sat, sat in the office, they had a friend on our staff and, you know, now it's the air raid. Shoot, you watch it closely. It's still, you know, stuff that Lavelle Evers has, had got going. But I think the magic of Lavelle was that he really schematically, he was just okay. But the way he handled things and he often said, he said, Hey, that's why I hire a staff. You, that's your job is to, to learn how to throw it or how to defend it or how to play defense. His job was to keep things in order, keep the players going, keep everything, you know, everything on even keel. And he did a fantastic job of that. And I'm not knocking him. 
because he said he, he said it many times. He said, "Well, why do you think we hire you guys? You know, that's your job to go take care of the scheme part." And he, he not that he didn't know it, but he just spent his time making sure that you know players were going to class, staying out of trouble, all that kind of stuff. And I think that was the real beauty of, of Lavelle Edwards. You know, that that's interesting that you say that. I remember talking to Brian Billick a few years ago. He was helping me out for a story that I was working on when I was in Green Bay covering the Packers. And the story, you know, kind of focused on um, first-year head coaches and guys that get co- uh, promoted from coordinator positions for the first time. And he said, I used to call it the 3 a.m. rule, and I'm paraphrasing his story here. But essentially what he said was, if you're a coach and you wake up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., are you more worried about what's going on with the practice schedule, who's coming up off the practice squad, you know, what the the scouts are doing, or are you more worried about what you're going to do on third and short and how you're going to combat a certain blitz scheme that the the opposition uses? And he said, if you are more like the former, then you're thinking like a head coach. And if you're more like the latter, then you're thinking like an X's and O's driven coordinator. And so it's really interesting to hear you talk about Lavelle in that way. How did you kind of view yourself up and coming back then when you were younger? Well, I, I was I was very fortunate. That was my you know my first college job, and I was blessed to work with some awfully good coordinators. You know, um, the name Doug Scoville. I don't know if you remember that name, but he, you know he has since passed. Ted Tolmer, you know those those kind of guys that were were just so helpful in trying to, you know, trying to learn, trying to figure out my you know navigate my way through a college uh, uh, through a coaching career and. I was supposedly Doug Scoville's receiver coach, but the realities are he was the quarterback and receiver coach. I sat in the back and took notes. And Mike, if you can imagine, I was going through my stuff, and I still have three notebooks from Doug Scoville. I wrote down everything that guy said, and I still have it. And I, I pulled it out during my career as a coach as well. And then, uh, so I was blessed that way. And then, when given the opportunity, you know, things were kind of rolling along, and. And we were blessed to have some terrific guys playing quarterback, you know, the tight Detmers and, and and guys like that. So it, it made it fun. It really did make it fun. It was a unique place because of the, you know, the, the private school atmosphere, if you will. Um, it was kind of a mom-and-pop operation for a long time because they had an AD and an assistant AD. You know, it didn't have any, any, any advertisements in the stadium. None of that stuff was going on. And then, you know, as time wore on, is that they became, they became more like everybody else and made it tougher to compete. But well, for a while, it was, it, it was such a unique place that, uh, that it, was, it was special. It was different and it made it special. Well, one of the unique things I think about your career is that you were able to spend 27 years in the same place. And as you know, coaching is such a volatile, transient industry that it's one year here, two years there, three years there. And not only does it it take a toll professionally, but certainly it can be difficult for family members in those situations. And so I'm wondering if you could kind of expand on how personally and professionally it was beneficial for you to stay in one place for so long at the start of your career. Well, Mike, that, that, thank you for asking that. that. That's a great question. I, you know, my wife and I decided early on that, that we wanted to, you know, try to be normal and, and raise a family, if you will, and, and, and not have them jump around like everybody else was, seemed to be doing in the, in the business. And so we made up our minds that if, if we didn't make it at BYU, if, you know, something were to happen and we got let go, that we would just kind of find something to do so that we could raise our family all in one spot. And, and we're awfully proud to say that, you know, we raised four children, all went to the same elementary school, same junior high, same high school, and then and it moved on from there. And and that's when we when when the youngest was 
I believe a junior or senior in high school is, you know, when it came time that we had to leave, it was a lot easier to move. Although I didn't move my family. I've only moved my family twice and I've been in a lot of different situations. So, uh, you know, with that, that we're proud of that, our, you know, so far so good. Our children are doing well. And, and, um, uh, they were all good students because the, the the oldest passed down the test to the next one who passed it down to the <laughs> test never changed. So, <laughs> so they all got to be gone. I'm just kidding. But, but anyway, yeah, that's, we had made up our minds to do that and blessed as ever and very fortunate that we were able to do that because I, I have a lot of friends. I mean, I, I, one of my dearest friends in coaching, I mean, that guy's moved like 30 times and every time he moved, he moved his gang with him, you know, and that's hard now. That's hard. Yeah, and I, I imagine too when your your kids are growing up in the same environment, you know, year after year, and your your wife is obviously there with you too, that they start to feel a little bit invested in the BYU program as well. Sure, sure, no question about it. But you know, you knew the time was going to come, and, and as you anticipated that, you know, Lavelle, after a while, you know, got 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 um, you know people inquired about about him moving, and and fortunately, he felt like that, like we did that. You know that was it for him. This is where he wanted to be, and and he obviously passed on probably making some. You know, back then the money was not like it is today, but uh, you know he didn't feel a need to move, and and there was something good going. And also on the football field, it made it nice, Mike, because um, you know it was easy coaching because the senior would teach the freshman how to run a route, and 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 they demanded that they they do things correctly, so that the discipline was there simply because of the. The, the players that were in the program, you know, they, as they got older, they took more responsibility. And we, we never changed how to run a curl in, you know, all the time I was there. You know, when it comes to, to the players, I'm curious, back then, what was recruiting like? And how did you mix that into the weekly schedule in an era before all this YouTube and social media and things like that that have made it, um, you know, different in a lot of ways? Well, it was tough. Recruiting was different because because of the, the, the you know, the the... the the school is respond is sponsored obviously by a, a religious, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and so, you know, majority of them were of the faith, that faith. But they were also, you know, we we had they, they weren't enough good players. In, in you know, if you just recruited the, the the LDS kids, you had to go out and recruit others, and that made it a, a little tougher, a little tougher to do, you know, because. Um, um, you know, they were all very concerned about, the, you know, kind of the strictness of that of that university. But, um, but you know, they, Lavelle was able to, to, to maneuver through that as well. I can remember uh, uh, Lavelle told the story that when he left, the, the new coach that took over told him, you know, I got it figured out. I'm going to recruit speed. <laughs> and Lavelle's, Lavelle's remark was, gosh, I wish I'd have thought of that. <laughs> that's pretty funny that's pretty funny yeah so yeah, so how yeah, did you yeah, find out hard. how did you find out about players in you know all different parts of the country back then well it was easy right because the the church is 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 far-reaching and you know there's 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 lds churches and lds uh, members all all over the country so they would they would you know uh People would call us all the time. Hey, you better check this guy out. You know, in Greenwich, Connecticut, that's how we found uh, Steve Young. You wow. know, somebody out there realized that and then and, and called and says, hey, you better check this guy out. So, yeah, that made, that made it. In a lot of ways, it made it easier, but there was a lot of, it was a lot more difficult because there weren't enough 
a good, sure. uh, good enough, play, you know, players like that. That's that's just such a unique situation where a religious institution plays a role in recruiting. You don't see that too often, and that's part of the uniqueness of, of BYU. And so, you know, when you hear about a guy like a Steve Young in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is, you know, about an hour and 15 minutes from where I'm recording this podcast right now. Okay, um, you know, all what, right. Did you, did you make the trip out to Connecticut and watch him? And if you did, what was he like back then? You know, I, I didn't. I, I don't know if any of us did because he wanted to come. Gotcha. You know, it was an easy mark. And, and, and the toughest part was deciding whether we would take him or not. Because of the film you saw, he, he wasn't a throwing quarterback. And at that point in time, that's what, you know, Bell had made up his mind to do. He was a very athletic guy, but he didn't throw much on, on the tape. And so the, I think I, I, I remember the biggest concern was, you know, do we really want this guy? <laughs> and, 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 and he wanted to come and, you know, there was some ties, Lavelle had some ties back there and so forth and so on. And so he, you know, he, he wasn't a difficult recruit. How's that? He That's... wasn't difficult to recruit. And, and <laughs> even during his career, you want to know some stories, Michael, uh, we used to tell him, uh, you know, we'd call, we'd have a pass pattern and say, okay, look at number one and then look at the tight end. We had a good tight end at the time by the name of Gordon Hudson. So he said, look at one, look at Hudson, look at Gordon, run. That was his keys. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing yeah yeah you know his his arrival and, uh, on campus you know roughly coincides with when you took over the play calling responsibilities and you hear so much about the importance of the relationship between a quarterback and a play caller and you know at the NFL level those guys can spend hours and hours and hours with each other because that's their full-time job but obviously students in college have to go to class and things so so how did you build relationships with quarterbacks at the college level given the finite amount of time that you have to to do it that, that that that's an also a very good question you know and and we were it, 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 you're fortunate if you're in a program and nowadays i think things are different because of the transfer portal but you know a guy sat around steve young sat around in quarterback meetings for a couple of years before it was his turn you know uh robbie bosco the same way i think the only one that didn't was ty detmer because it was kind of a need at that time that the numbers weren't rolling like they should have so those guys sat around for two years before they played for two years. And, 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 and Steve was able to do that before he got his turn. Uh, I can't remember the sequence, but, you know, uh, Mark Wilson and Jim McMahon were the same way. They, they, they sat around and learned from, from the previous guy. So that, that helped. Uh, Steve Young's first college game, by the way, I, you know, it, was, it, it did coincide with me calling the game, and, and uh, he threw four picks at, at uh, <laughs> University of Georgia. <laughs> But he uh, he turned out he's a tremendous obviously turned out so well he's a tremendous player and, and young person I wish we could take more credit for him I think he really learned his football and he went to the USFL and had to kind of hang out before and then plus he had a chance to sit behind Joe Montana you know when he was at BYU he was just an athlete playing quarterback right and and did a ter- terrific job doing that. One of the things that's always interested me, and, and you hear more about it, I think, at the NFL level than college, but I'm curious, you know, were you a guy that, that liked to script the first couple drives of a game, or did you go totally on feel? Oh, no, no, no. We, we are, I learned, we, we always scripted uh, the first 15 plays, and, and I learned again from Doug Scoble, and every play would be a different formation. You know, every play, would there would be a play pass from the uh, off. You know, we take the run that we did, well the week before and, and made sure we had a play pass off of that 
there'd always be a screen in there. You know, there, there were different things that we, we, we made sure that we mandated that were in those first 12 or 15. You know, a shot, you know, make sure you take a shot. But then again, I think people get, get kind of uh, kind of messed up that way in that those first 12 or 15 weren't just put together by the coordinator. You, you sat down there as a staff and, and you figured it out, you know, and, and, and so it was a group thing. And then the players knew it so well. When we were in the NFL, actually, uh, the, the Saturday night meetings, I would always show the first 12, uh, you know, from practice. And so the players knew it, you know, so they didn't even really have to, 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 to listen to a, a play call because, you know, obviously you have to change, right? Third and two, you're not sure. going to run the same play you had scripted. But, but I, that's why I kind of I have to chuckle. I watched it, turned on a game last night to watch the uh, our Griffin. And the very first play of the game, he's reading it off his, his wristband. Yeah, and I'm thinking, my gosh, you should you should already know what that play is. You should know that play so well that you can't wait to run it to get it going because you practice it so much. But you know, maybe others don't do it. I don't know. But you know, long answer to your short question, yes, we did that. I learned it from Doug, and and Doug 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 stuck to it now. And um, you know, we have we have, and even when the, my our last job with the XFL, which we had a terrific coaching staff, we would sit around. And I, as a coordinator, I, I, you know, I said, okay, twenty dollars for the first guy, the guy that comes up with our first play and makes it to make a first down. You know, we'd have fun that way, chalking, chalking it up on the board. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I imagine over the years that some of those meetings, when you're trying to, you know, you know, throughout the week, outfox the opposing coaching staff, I imagine those are some of the most fun uh, times that you have, just brainstorming, collaborating, you know, just coming up with all these ideas. I have to think that that's just a, a really enjoyable environment for a coach. Yes, it is, without question. Especially, you know, and the whole key is is making sure you have a staff that that everyone gets along. You know, obviously, it's not always going to be that way, but. For the most part, yeah, because you know everybody everybody wants 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 to feel needed and and you know everybody wants to be a part of things. Everybody wants to contribute, and I think it's up to a coordinator, head coach, to make sure that does that does happen because you certainly spend a lot of time together. How would you try and spend your time in between drives during a game? What would you try and accomplish when the defense was on the field? Well, you know, uh, in the old days, obviously, without the, the iPads and, and, the, and the surfaces and all that stuff, it was a little tougher. But we always had a guy um, uh, sitting by that, that charted the plays and as best as he could, the, the defenses, you know, the coverage. We always had a guy assigned to the front of the coverage and so forth. And then you just, you just study that. And, you know, what are they doing first down-wise? What are they doing against this this um this, this this formation, this motion, that kind of things, you know, and and knowing, fully understanding that the the defensive guy is doing the same thing, you know. So you you, I think you need to do a good job of anticipating, which I'm sure good play callers do. Um, I love the way the the guy, I don't know who it is, but the guy at Pittsburgh, the Steeler Roethlisberger's guy, how he he scripts things up. I think it's really kind of cool to watch all of that. Um, and then then Michael, then the key is you have a dartboard at the back and you throw a dart and you whatever place you show up that's what you call <laughs> that's funny that's funny you know I'm, I'm curious once you start to have a couple of years under your belt as a play caller and you get up to two three four five and there's you know a large sample size of you know norm chow calling plays in the off season would you ever go back and look at yourself to see if there were any recognizable patterns and things that other teams could pick up on with your own play calling oh, oh no question no question it's called self-scout 
you know, you self-scout yourself all the time, throw those things in the computer, you do it. That's what a bye week is for. I think that's what NFL teams do during their bye week, is they make sure that they're they're not establishing, you know, because basically the thought is, hey, crunch time when it's third and four, third and three, a defensive coordinator is going to call what he believes in the most. And the same applies to an offense. You know, when, when it comes down to crunch time, this is what I have a police system and this is what it's going to get called. And and the other thing we were often with, I, I called it Friday night homework. I, I made the quarterbacks look at the game plan and throw out three or four calls that they didn't like and tell me what they wanted to run on third and four, third and three. Third and three is a hard call, right? Less than that, you can probably run. Over that, you got to throw but third and three is the call, and, and I would always ask those guys, tell me, it's third and three, we have to make a first down to win this game, give me the call. And I'd call for them, because that's what they believed in. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. You know, I, I've never really thought about the idea of just how one yard, one way or the other, from third and two to, to third and four or five, can make such a difference in, in the play-calling mind, and especially in the mind of the quarterback. But it makes sense, right? Like, if, if that's a crucial play, you don't want to be calling something that your quarterbacks didn't feel comfortable with during the week, right? Sure, sure. No question about it. No question about it. And some guys felt stronger than others. You know, Steve Young would never – Steve Young would tell you, Coach, you know, don't he did coach when he was getting started. Obviously, he didn't want to check. He didn't want to make an all. He said, "Coach, just call the play and I'll make it happen," because he didn't want that responsibility. But on the other hand, then you say, "Okay, Steve, now is turn three. Okay, what do you like? What can you make happen?" And uh, Carson Palmer was real big on that. He enjoyed that. He liked that. He looked forward to telling me all the plays <laughs> that he wanted to get called because that that was that was Carson. When you have a quarterback like Steve Young, who you described as at that point as an athlete playing quarterback, and he's got such tremendous ability to make things happen with his legs, either by design or when things break down, what was it like to, to just kind of watch? I don't know if you called those games from the sideline or up in the booth, but just to see Steve Young be Steve Young on the field and just make things happen when, when something goes wrong. Oh, it, 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 it was fun. It was, it, you know, it was really something. And I, I did it always from the booth. And, and then the other guy that used to be like that was uh, Vince Young. Vince Young, when he was a rookie at Tennessee, I mean, you just sat back and went, wow. You know, he, he, if, he if things broke down and, and the things that he was capable of doing off of, off of, off of plays that, that uh, you know, didn't break down, that broke down, he was, he was absolutely amazing because of his, his you know, his athletic skills. Um yeah, yeah, oh yeah. You know, and when we were in the NFL, there was a study done from the year before. I don't know if I said this much, but over seventy percent of the, you know, how the NFL they study everything. Over seventy sure. percent of the completed pass plays were done off rhythm. In other words, they weren't done hmm. exactly like you have it drawn up in the playbook. And so, you know, to have those guys that it could could make something happen. Was, was was really something, you know. That's why I think today's day, today's era, with the more mobile, quote unquote, mobile quarterback, 
you know, it allows those things to happen. When you have a quarterback that can do that, how important is it from, you know, the tight ends, backs, and receivers to be able to uh, have enough awareness on the field to A, recognize that their quarterback has escaped the pocket or the play has broken down, and then B, understand the scramble rules well enough to have chemistry? Is that hard to teach for certain guys, or do they pick that up pretty quickly? Well, I think you have to practice it. You know, think about it. If you, Michael, if you, if 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 seventy percent of the plays were off rhythm, then you should be practicing off rhythm plays seventy percent of the time. Right. And nobody does. Right. No, I, I guarantee you, nobody does that. But I think you know, every place we've been, there's been scramble rules. If he goes this way, you do this. If he goes that way, you do that. You know, I think, and I think you need to practice it. And no one ever does. You you kind of forget about it, if you will. And so you have to remind yourself every once in a while during the seven on seven drill. Hey. Just tell a quarterback, hey, you know, pretend like the the pocket's breaking down. You gotta you gotta move around and, and see how people react. So I think you need to practice that on a ton. Certainly not nobody does it seventy percent, but certainly you you know you should do it a, a, a lot if you will. You know, I wanted to ask you about the '84 season when you guys won the national title with you know Robbie Bosco at quarterback. He finishes second in the country in total passing and third in the Heisman voting, and that's a year after Steve Young is runner-up in the Heisman. And you know that '84 team. When you think about it, all these years later, what what's one of your favorite memories from that group that accomplished you know you know arguably the most special season in in school history? Oh, uh, that's also a real good question, Michael. I, I just we just lost um, our safety that played that year. A young man by the name of Kyle Morrell uh, recently passed of, of, of uh, ALS and Luke Gehrig's disease, that awful, awful disease. And he made the play uh, that, in my mind, was probably the single greatest play as far as my history goes at, at BYU, in BYU football. We're over in Hawaii. We're losing. We're down. Uh, and the time's running out. We're down. I believe it was 13, 12. They're on the goal line. He, on his own, he he times it up. He jumps over the center, grabs the quarterback, and pulls him down. Wow! Sounds I mean, like on sounds like own. Troy Polamalu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something Troy would do. And 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 then the offense took the ball. The offense had been hadn't been playing very well and drove the length of the field and scored, and so we beat them. And that was in the middle of the year, which, you know, had that not happened, we probably would not have had a chance at that so-called national championship. But uh, in my mind, that was probably the greatest single play. And that, plus the fact that those guys are, are – uh, that team is still close from what I understand. Glenn Kozlowski, I don't remember that name. He ended sure. up playing with uh, the Cleveland uh, Chicago Bears for a long time. He and I just talked a week or so ago because of Kyle's passing. And, and – uh, and that's what he said. The guys were so close. They still are. They still talked all the time. And, and that's what I remember about it. You know, you, 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 as the years wear on, you kind of who won that game, who won that game. I don't know. But the relationships and the, the people that you meet and the players that are there and the relationships you have with them and they have with one another, I think that's what you take with you as memory-wise. You know, at the end of the season, it's so rare for any team at any level to go undefeated. And so for the coaches that have put in the thousands of hours and the players that have put in the thousands of hours, what is the emotion like when you get to December, January and the season ends and you realize you won every single game on your schedule and you did everything you possibly could? Is it just like the ultimate exaltation? Well, well I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure, you know, and, and, and you feel good about all of that, but but you should also feel good if you, you know, if you just 
felt like you 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 did put in an honest day's work for an honest day's effort, you know, if you will. And because you, you you have to be awfully lucky, right, to, to get through a scene. I mean, there has to be some times when when luck plays a, a factor. So you just obviously be grateful. The problem in college football is that you you start recruiting the next day. Well, you've been recruiting all right. along, so there's not much time to catch your breath in the NFL. You know, when the season ends, I mean, people get two, three weeks, four weeks, maybe a time off, you know, where they, where they don't even have to go in the office. They can go home and do whatever they want to do, and that's the time you get to reflect. But college football, those guys are doing, you know, they're working on 24-7. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a crazy schedule, and, and they've got to be recruiting from, you know, every minute that they're not actually coaching or game planning. You know, you got to be working the recruits because that's just the nature of the job and and you know I'm curious speaking of recruiting when you went to NC State in 2000 and they've got this kid named Philip Rivers there you know obviously <laughs> you weren't you weren't on the staff when they were starting to recruit him because you were still at BYU so what did you know about him and what was it like to just see that guy as a true freshman oh I, Michael you bring it back it was it, it, it was absolutely one of one of the fondest men people ask me in fact you know, all the years you coached, what was the most enjoyable? And other than the high school stint, I think the the, the year with Philip was so so special. But there's a there was a coach who who he and I still stay in touch. In fact, I talked to him not too long ago, Joe Pate, mm-hmm. who was on the previous staff, and he had recruited Philip. And 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 so when we got there, uh, Chuck Amato, our, our the new head coach, kept Joe on the staff, and so Philip showed up. Philip showed up. Uh, at the semester, you know, for spring ball. And that's sure. when we took over, when Chuck took over was in January and so forth. And and so we, I, I, you know, got all the quarterbacks, receivers together, said, hey, let's go out and throw the ball around a little bit. You know, at, at the time, you, you're you really not supposed to be there, but, you, you know, you kind of organized sure. it and you watched it and, and so forth. And then, so we, the new staff, we kind of snuck around a little bit, stood up in the bleachers, sat up in the bleachers and watched them throw and I went, oh my! What in the world do we have here? You know, with that throwing motion of his, <laughs> yep. we just went. You got to be kidding me! In fact, Philip not too long ago told a story. He said my first words to him was, do "You have is something wrong with your arm? Do you have a sore arm?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but Philip said I said that. But after that, it was just marvelous. What a what a what a he just a terrific young guy and we all know that he's a hall sure. of favor for x6 but but back then as an 18 year old oh but gosh did we have fun with him well, you know it was uh, uh, go ahead well i was gonna say i knew he had a remarkable season just based on the statistics so earlier today when i was putting my when i was putting my notes together i went back and looked at it and his very first game i'm sure you remember this was a double overtime thriller against arkansas state where as a true freshman <laughs> he throws for 397 yards three touchdowns and no interceptions in his first game as a college player i mean what in the world how do you do that in the in the driving rain too, like big time rain in in Raleigh, he just he just kept chucking it. Uh, he he was something. He was really really. He was you know he obviously brought up right right. His sure. father was a coach. He understood how to be a quarterback. We had a, we had a, a returnee from the previous staff that that everyone thought would be the quarterback. And he took the first day of spring practice. He was the number one. Philip was right behind him, whatever. And and I finally, I went that, I don't know when, but I went to the head coach's office. And I said, Chuck, we got to make a change right now. You know, Philip is a quarterback. 
And Chuck's remark to me was, you, you beat me to it because I was going to come <laughs> down to your office to tell you that's what we got to do. And so he was not a uh, starting quarterback at NC State for all of one day in his four-year career. And uh, he was he is fun. He's, 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 uh, he's, he's smart. He's excited. I mean, he, he's, he's a, I, I love the guy. I, I honestly really have all the respect in the world. And I'll, I'll tell you another fun story. You know, he, he's from the South, right? Sure. So we're always, we're always fixing to do stuff. Okay. Coach, are we fixing to do this? Are we fixing to do that? And I'm from Hawaii with, with pigeon English. So I, 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 I went up to him. I said, Philip, you know what? We're going to get a little real well because I don't understand a word you're saying. And you probably don't understand a word I'm saying. <laughs> so we're going to get along. And we did. Until today, he's one of my all-time favorite football players. But not as only as a terrific football player, but as a, you know, a father, a husband, a player, a, a person, a man. He's, he's unbelievable. I can't say enough good things about that. You know, obviously right after that one season, you go to USC, and, and I don't know exactly what was going on in terms of, you know, what your aspirations were at that particular moment, but given the talent that Rivers had, were you tempted at all to stick around and see what you could do with a guy like that? Oh, there was no question. In fact, you know, I was flattered when Pete called. I, I you know, I knew obviously who Pete was, but I, actually I knew Pete hired a young uh, coach, not young, a coach by the name of Dwayne Walker. Okay. As his first hire, and Dwayne is a friend of mine, and he, I think Dwayne was the one that recommended me. Oh yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, Pete called. I actually told him no a couple of times, and he just kept, you know, making it so, making it too attractive. My family was still out in Utah, and and so um, you know it would be closer, and and so we finally did it. And and um, the thing that got me going was I kept thinking about that white horse, you know, sure. that white horse Trojan that they used to. Have? And I thought, oh, well, when will I get a chance to coach with a, that white horse? You know, so it was hard. It was really difficult leaving Chuck and and and, and Philip like that because you knew they were on to something special. Yeah. And Chuck was a terrific guy to work for, and he, um, you know, he kind of let us run the offense because he's a, you know, was a defensive-minded guy. And yeah, that was hard. That was no question about it. But you know, I kind of sat back and said, you know, like the family again, it would be closer to home, and and. Uh, you know, they could see it a lot easier, get get back and forth, that kind of stuff. So yeah, that was a that was a hard one. Yeah, and then you walk onto the campus at, you know, Southern California there in, in Los Angeles and you enter a quarterback room that has Carson Palmer, Matt Castle and Matt Liner. And I'm just thinking to myself, what I mean, how how do you even process the amount of talent that was in that room? And and you know, granted you could expand that to the whole team. The amount of talent on those teams in general at USC was just was just silly. It was just crazy. And so, you know, to to, to, to look at a quarterback room like that, I mean, you you must have, you know, felt like uh, you know, uh, walking into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory with all those embarrassments of riches. There's no question about it. The first two players that I met were, you know, Carson and Matt Castle walked in, and and uh, uh, you know, Matt was Matt was down the road at a at a high school at Leonard at the high, at, uh, high school down the street, and we were recruiting him, and and uh, so oh yeah, no question about it. Carson Palmer, you know, and Matt and. And it was hard because you know Matt Castle hardly played a down, right? And yet his career, his career lasted longer than, than Carson Palmer's. And we we, we moved in the tight end, and oh, he and I had some knockdown dragouts in the office because you know he felt like he wanted needed a chance, and especially when Carson left, 
seed, and everyone expected Matt Castle to take over, and and we, you know, as a staff, decided to go with Matt Leinart, and so that 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 you know I love Matt Castle, and that that uh, you know that experience was was something because he um, he certainly deserved a shot, but with that kind of talent, you need, the problem is there's only one ball, right? And the right. decision was made to go with Matt Leinart. You know, Carson had such a tremendous professional career as well as, you know, winning the Heisman Trophy, obviously. But what I always, you know, kind of marveled at with him is that when you see him and you see how big he was and how strong he was, it was like he was built to play quarterback. Did he look like that, too, when you got to USC? Uh, No question. No question. If you had to make a training tape of what you'd like a quarterback to look at with form and technique and and that kind of stuff, all you do is, is tape Carson Palmer. You know, he was a guy that, you know, he was typical stuff out here in Southern California, they, the quarterbacks all have their own coaches, you know, their own personal coaches and so forth. And he had one, I guess, since he was whatever, 10, 12, I don't know how old he was, but he had a guy and, and that guy taught him well. There's no question about it. He has perfect form, perfect technique. What's interesting about Carson is he would tell you all the time, he says, Coach, I have to see it. i got to see it. So he, So he would take – every practice rep that he could take. But once he got it, Michael, oh, gosh. You know, it was almost stealing the way he threw the football around because it took him a little while. And and uh, it meant Matt Castle and, and those fellows had less reps in practice. But, boy, once he got it, he, he's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. And another another fine fellow, father, husband, uh, He's just he's just a great guy. You know, to have the kind of weapons that that team had in terms of, uh, you know, obviously the quarterback situation is well documented, but, you know, a Lendale White, a Reggie Bush, uh, Kerry Colbert, Mike Williams. I mean, when, when you're drawing <laughs> up plays, I mean, it, it's almost like, you know, how do I give each guy enough reps, I imagine, right? Because you could have thrown the ball anywhere. <laughs> you're right, Michael. You're right. Who do we give the ball to now? You yeah. know, and... And we had a tight end, Alex Holmes, and, and uh, Dominic Bird. We had, we had, we had, there was a ton of talent on that football team. And but you know what? That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what Alabama is like. That's what Ohio State is like. I would imagine Notre Dame. You know, it, it's well, USC should here and now. They're you know they're not as where they should be right now. And and I think that's what they, you know. You don't equate USC to, and I don't want to knock anybody. You don't want to equate them to anybody else. You, you equate them with Alabama. Sure. And Notre Dame and Ohio State and, and and it's not that way now and it's it's tough it's tough for the fans it's tough for the boosters that too is is you know it's a private institution now it's a unique unique place you know there were so many guys that came through Pete Carroll's staffs there that have gone on to become coordinators or head coaches at you know at, at either level the college or the professional level um, you know did you guys get the sense too that in addition to having such tremendous quality on the field that it was just a unique group of coaches with a lot of brain power in the classroom. Well, you know, it didn't. I, I don't know if Peter, you know, realized that that's what he was doing, getting started. But I think he took great pride in 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 his staff moving on. You know, he encouraged guys to move. He told me I needed to go to a, you know, we had a shot after a season to go to go get into the NFL. You know, he says you you got to do this. You know, and and we were quite comfortable here, obviously. Uh, 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 you know, close to home, and, and we had actually moved to Los Angeles. We're still, you know, we're still in Los Angeles, but he he did that. He would encourage guys to go because I think that's what made him the proudest. You know, they had Ogeron, you know, Nick Holt moved on, and 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 so many others. 
but I think that's what he prided. He took a lot of pride in in putting together that kind of staff and kind of mentoring them along and and, and moving on. Why and was, I'll um, always be grateful to Pete for that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, why why was 2005 the right time for you to make a move to the NFL? And and what had your thoughts been on the idea of jumping to the NFL just in general throughout you know the first couple decades of your career? Well, you know that had the, going there, trying the NFL had had never been. You know, you, you know, I I learned a long time when when we first got started. In fact, it was Doug Scoble. He said, you know, there's two types of assistant coaches: those that aspire to be head coaches, and those that are just content to do the job they're doing and trying to do it well. And he said, the, the profession needs both. Okay, the one's not any better than the other. Uh, get, you know, I want to make sure of that. But but I was content just to be an assistant coach. But then we had that tremendous year, you know. And and without sounding, I'm not I'm not trying to try to make it sound too braggadocio or whatever. But you know, a couple three teams had actually called from the NFL, and so sure. the chance to go from a college coordinator to an NFL coordinator was just too much to pass up. And 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 you know the. Uh, say what you want but the, the money is such that you know i needed to think about retirement and all sure. those kind of things and so uh and you know you feed a family and so it, it, it turned out to be the right time so when and it was go- the right move yeah did you know jeff fisher at that point nope no i obviously i knew who he was sure and uh so when he, he's a, he was a usc guy so when he called and just a couple others you know it just seemed like the right move to make uh at that time in your career what would you um, what would you say was the biggest schematic challenge for you trying to apply some of the offensive concepts you ran for years and years in college and then trying to implement those in the NFL? Uh, protection schemes, protection schemes on third down, five third and six situation. Watch out! I mean, you see stuff that you go, wow, you know, come on now, they can't do this. I remember the first time we played the Steelers. Troy Polamalu, who I, you know, had been with at SC, lined up on the line of scrimmage. And, and as I looked at the tape, I said, there's no way he can get back there through the deep middle or whatever. And sure enough, they snapped the ball, and he's back there doing what he's supposed to be doing. You know, the the, the talent level on the, in the NFL and the schemes that those guys put together, defensive coaches put together, I think that's the, that was a really, really tough adjustment. Um and thank goodness I work with some good guys, uh, you know, Mike Munchak, uh, the offensive sure. line coach to, to Denver now, I believe. You know, he just, he had it all. You know, he just settled in and said, okay, you know, don't worry about this. We'll do this. We'll take care of this. And I'll never forget Mike's, Mike's support as well. Yeah, I, I can imagine the, uh, you know, some of the exotic looks and things that these guys cook up would just be, you know, that's the kind of thing that would keep you up at night trying to figure out how you can get it ready for a Sunday when you're in the team hotel on yeah, a Saturday. Yeah. Um, you know, your yeah, first, well, no you know, throughout your career, there's been a, a common theme of, you know, you've had the opportunity to work with some amazing quarterbacks and and you've done, you know, a tremendous job with those quarterbacks. And I know it was toward the, the tail end of his career, but, you know, what was it like to see a Steve Young? in the first time you stepped foot in the NFL or excuse me uh, Steve McNair sorry I got my Steves mixed oh, up but to see a Steve yeah, McNair oh. when you enter the NFL I mean you know just a guy that you know represented so much coming from a you know a, a historically black college you know just what he stood for and the way he carried himself I got to imagine that was a little bit of a treat oh it really was and I learned more from Steve McNair than I think Steve obviously Steve McNair learned from me he was a, a 
competitive, tough, hard nose, had seen it all. Like I, you know, he he was he was something, and I, 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 he would come to me during the week, and he says, "Norm, just tell me where the problems are." In other words, where do we have problems uh, uh, protection-wise? What do I need to see so that I understand whether I'm protected or not? He says, I'll take care of all the rest. I'll do all the rest, which meant, which meant he understood coverages and all that so well. And so he would, we would talk about the problems, and then we bring Mike in, and, and, and we would talk about, the, the, you know, with the line people, line coaches, line coach, and, and figure out how to, how to pick up the blitzes or whatever, 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 and he took care of the rest. He, would, he couldn't even practice during the week. He would get so beat up during the wow. weekend. You know, physically practice. He'd go out there and he'd just do his little deal, and, and but he was paying attention all the time. And he treated – I was a rookie guy, right? I mean, I had never been in the NFL. He'd been in there for years. He treated me with, with uh, respect and, 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 you know, courtesy, and he was, he was, he was patient with it. He was, he was something else. He really was. But it was toward the end of his career, and, you know, you, you knew he was kind of slowing down, and then they, they let him go, actually. They traded him to yep. Baltimore, I think, and he had another couple of years, and then, you know, tragically how, how his life ended. Yeah, yeah. I, it's just you know one of the one of the sadder stories in in sports the way that you know he he passed and just a tr- a tremendous tremendous player. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about a quote I saw from you. Um, you know, you were talking about the differences between coaching in college and the NFL, and you talked about just the unrelenting pressure that there is in the NFL, just over and over and over again to win immediately. And I think the quote said something like, "As soon as you get back home after a game, you're already grading." the tape and looking ahead to the next team and and so you know I, I imagine that that pressure is is probably never greater for an organization than when you use a top pick on a quarterback as you guys did in 2006 with Vince Young do you remember feeling like okay that we just we just used an elite draft pick on a player that has to be the face of our franchise is that daunting in a way for coaches oh no question but I I, I honestly felt like uh there was going to be, you know, at, at the time that there was going to be some, some, some time involved when you, you, you could play a veteran, you know, Kerry Collins at the time, you know, and, and he, he was a consummate pro as well. But I don't think there's any question that, you know, because in the NFL, every year is a new year, right? So the, the pressure is on, I don't know how these head coaches take it. I really don't. And, uh, it just it's just week after week after week, and and you need to come up with with a, a, a new game plan. I mean, defensive coaches are are, are, are are tremendous, and they can figure you out. I'll tell you another little little story. We were we we, we were playing uh, the Colts. We had to play the Colts, and you know they were in the division with Tony Dungy. In fact, it's in his book, one of the first books. I think the first book he wrote. We had no chance. We knew we had no chance. Because they had paid Manny and, and sure. whatever we were beat up, and so we, I went to the offensive staff and and we thought about we we, I, I, we talked about the result, you know j- j- we we were we were and I'm not bragging again, but we were a little ahead of ourselves and, and put in the result and 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 all the college all the pro coaches you know say ah that's Joe College stuff okay, <laughs> well we put in we put it in anyway we put it in anyway, so sure enough the first play we run Vince runs it hands it off the Lendell White, he goes 15. Jeff is talking in the head, says, run it again. Coach, you want to run it again? Yeah, run it again. So I, we changed the formation, ran it again, got another 15. Run 
run it again. Yeah, three times in a row. Yes, run it again. We run it again. Vince keeps it, scores the touchdown. We go 70 yards in about three plays. Wow. And, and I mean, we're, you know, ecstatic with that. Okay, that's not the whole story. The whole story, Michael, is is I'm up in a booth, and the Colts are on the sideline right in front of us. And I look down with my glasses, and Tony Dungy, in calm as ever, grabs his whiteboard and draws up all the stuff to stop it. I couldn't see what was on the whiteboard, but he, he, he described to the defense what was going on. And because it was a Joe College play, we had not gone the next step. You know, if we, sure. if we do this, they do that, we, we hadn't done that. Okay, so we saved the play to about the third quarter. We run again, and it gets swapped. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> we had no chance. But that's how quickly those guys adjust to things. <laughs> yeah. Long answer again to your short question. No, no, I like it. The longer the answer, the better. This is what you know. That's that's part of the reason why I like doing the show is because you know listeners love hearing these stories and hearing them in an extended fashion. Um, you know, you spoke so glowingly about Vince's athletic ability earlier, and I know that he had you know some off the field issues and things that made it tough for him at times. But I almost look at Vince Young and I think if he came into the league in 2016 instead of 2006, ten years later. When, you know, there's the Lamar Jacksons and the Patrick Mahomes and the guys that can really move. I almost wonder if his career plays out a little bit differently, almost like he was a couple of years just ahead of his time. Oh, yeah, possibly, possibly. You're right, because the, 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 the era of the, of the, of the, the, you know, the mobile, quote-unquote, mobile quarterback was such. You're right. And Vince, you know, I, I, I saw Vince since then, you know, he was in actually in LA and, and he, you know, he agrees. He, he, he was ready, but not quite ready. You know sure. what I mean? It was so, the, 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 like you talked about the pressure and all that was enormous on the young guy. And, and, you know, he was young and, and not as experienced with it. And he handled it very, very well. You know that he was rookie of the year, and then went yep. to the Pro Bowl, and then then things, you know, then things kind of went south on the guy, and and and, but it was hard. It was really, really hard for him because of all the pressure that was there, and you know, um, uh, the things that people expected of him. But yeah, maybe so. I never thought of it that way. But as a um, as a pure athlete, I have to imagine it was breathtaking to watch some of the things he could do in practice and in games. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable! I, again, I'll tell you, uh, you know, tell a story. We were, we uh, Jeff Fisher could not lose to Houston. Okay, Houston was because uh, he had come from Houston, sure. and the owner had come from Houston. There was a lot of animosity there, and so we, play, in my time there, we played Houston six times and never lost. I mean, it was just Super Bowl, and so we're going into overtime with with, with Houston one game, and it's third and four. And we tell Vince, look, look here. If it's not there, just scramble. Get yourself a first down, okay? Get four yards, get the first down, get us keep the chains moving, and we're going to kick a field goal, go home. The guy took the ball. Nothing was there. He ran 56 yards for a touchdown. I mean, wow. nobody even came close to touching him. Get the fence. Ho, ho, ho. And he, <laughs> boom, touchdown. <laughs> and the game's over. You just sat there and marveled at him. And yeah. he was trying to get us four. We asked him for four, and he got us fifty-six or whatever. So <laughs> was that's uh, the kind of ability he had? Was Was Reggie Bush the same way when you watched him at SC? Same way, same way. Reggie was the same way. Yeah. He was, he, he'd take your breath away. Uh, yeah. He'd take your breath away with, with the things he could do. But you know what? I, I said this many times. Lindell White 
deserves as much credit as Reggie Bush because Lendell White made sure that that relationship worked. You know what I mean? They both obviously wanted the ball. They both couldn't have the ball, but those two guys worked so well together, and, and it was it was Lendell. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't not Reggie, but it was Lendell that really really pushed to make sure that that relationship works. Everybody would get the ball. Everybody would you know have a chance to do their stuff. You know, let, uh, Reggie let, was electrified. Last last question about your time in Tennessee. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of like talking about on this show, especially with coaches and guys that can really appreciate, you know, what I'm about to ask you is, um, you know, offensive linemen don't get a lot of love because it's not a sexy position, but just how good was Kevin Mawai? Oh, <laughs> you, you, Michael, you, I love I love this because that, those, you're talking about all my favorite guys. Kevin Mawai was, was, was special. And I, I use this example till till I day I quit coaching. Friday night, Saturday night meetings, you know, I mean, what are you going to teach a guy on Saturday night, right, that he doesn't already know from all week long? It's just to, to take up space, take up some time before the Sunday game. So after, you know, uh, we'd always have meetings in a hotel and then dinner or vice versa, whatever. Kevin Bowai on a Saturday night sat in the very front row with his notepad open taking notes, taking notes. I mean, whatever I was saying or whoever was up front was saying, he was taking notes sitting in the front row. And there sat a bunch of rookies in the back just kind of lounging around, just trying to get through the hour that we were going to be together. But that was what made Kevin Mawai. I mean, I'm going to tell him, you got to, you know, he's whoever is up front is going to say something. Kevin is going, really? I didn't know that. There's no way, right? He's already been through it all, all week long. And yet he was up there every Saturday night taking notes yeah. in his notepad. That's awesome. And then that's Kevin Mawai. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I was invited to his, his uh, Hall of Fame speech or whatever sure. a couple of years. He's at Arizona State now, right? I, 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 I. So I texted him back. I said, is the airline ticket go along with the invitation? And unfortunately, <laughs> it wasn't. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but for... he, again, you're talking about some special people, Michael. Yeah, very, for, very special people. Yeah, the reason I bring it up is because he's arguably one of the best centers in, in NFL history. I mean, eight Pro Bowls, seven-time first-team All-Pro, inducted into the Hall of Fame in, in 2019. And, you know, it's one of those guys where, yeah, you know, the average fan can can understand that he's a good player. But when you hear a story like you just gave from a perspective that fans wouldn't get, that's where you really start to learn about the character and the integrity of the guy and, and what makes them, you know, that, that Hall of Fame level. So it's, it's really cool to to hear uh to hear stories like that um you know i, I oh he, he he's unbelievable unbelievable yeah. I believe it. I believe it. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you earlier, we, I asked you a question kind of, you know, why was it the right time for you to jump to the NFL uh, when you did in 05? And so, you know, the question I want to ask now is why was it the right time in 12, 2012 for you to become a head coach for the first time and, and take over at Hawaii? <laughs> ah, that's a good question as well. You know, I, 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 I'm not even sure I, I, I can answer that one. I, um, uh, you know, again, never, never, never had the need to, to be a head coach. Never had a need to go in the NFL. Just, just kind of content to doing what I was doing. And and I don't know. I, I had a couple of uh, 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 boosters over there. A couple of uh, guys on the committee that I knew that you know, because I didn't. When the job came up, I I had no intentions of even applying or whatever, whatever. 
And then uh, they called and said, hey, you know, what do you think about coming back and that kind of thing. And it, it just turned out that way, if you will. Um, it, it's a hard gig over there. Yeah. The guys that, that can do it, June and those guys that did it before, deserve a lot of credit. It's it's. Uh, but, you know, I had a daughter that moved over there, and she had a couple of grandchildren, and, and that I looked at as a real plus because it gave me a chance to spend some time with them and, and you know, that you don't normally would normally have. So was it the right move? Yeah, obviously. I'm not going to look back and say, oh, I should have done that. But, but it, it was hard. It was really hard, um, mainly because all of the good players over there you know, the Marcus Mariotas and the uh, Tunga Vailolas, you know, they want to leave. They should right. leave. All the years when I was at other places and went over there to recruit, I'd keep telling guys, hey, you got to leave. Grow up a little bit. Get off this island, and then, you know, you can always go back. And all of a sudden, I'm over there recruiting and saying, hey, you got to stay home. You got to stay yeah. home. You know, I was kind of contradicting myself. And, and so that you couldn't get the good players to stay, and they shouldn't stay. They should go. And then you couldn't get guys to come all the way over from the, the you know, the, the, the we call it the mainland because it's too far and their families don't get a chance to see them. So right. uh, it was hard. It was hard to recruit there. And, and the guys that do, it, that do it well, like June before, uh, they deserve a lot of credit. What was, um, you know, I, I know certainly the the record was, was tough over four years there, but what was one of your favorite memories of being a head coach? It might not have anything to do with football at all. Maybe it's a personal memory, but what did you enjoy about, you know, having the chance to do that for four years? Oh, it, it's, you, you really have a chance, Michael, to, 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 to influence a young person, you know, the direction they're going to go in life. You, you know, you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense if that's true. Sure to modeling or whatever, but you know, you to see a guy grow up, how's that to see, to give a guy a chance and to see a guy grow up and, and, and do well and, and accomplish things that they want to do. I think that that's what's, that's, what's the fun part. I think just like you said about, you know, Brian Billick's example and in college, you obviously you have a little more influence than you do in the, in the NFL about as far as uh, seeing a young man grow up and mature. Uh, you know, that was the fun part. I mean, Hey, how about, you know, the, the, I'm sure you've read about Rigoberto Sanchez, the yep. kicker at the uh, Colts that is having some, some health issues. And, you know, this, uh, I texted him. He texted me right back. I mean, to stay in touch with guys like that and to encourage them to, you know, that, that, that a lot of people are offering up their prayers and that kind of thing. I think that's what you remember the most is the people. The record was hard. I mean, one year we played. Colorado, Ohio State, and Wisconsin, and Boise, and, and three of the four were on the road. Right, and to see those young men just kind of hang in, and you know, you uh, you, you don't travel uh, 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 charter now. You you fly. I don't know if they charter now, but in, back then, the flight from Hawaii to the mainland was a commercial flight. Yeah, and your players are sitting there with you know grandmothers taking their children to Disneyland and all that. <laughs> it's hard, man. Takes takes its toll on these young people. Yeah, yeah, but I, I can I can really understand what you said about you know having the ability to influence a young guy's life. I had the opportunity this fall. I grew up as a soccer player. That was the sport that I played, and okay. I had a chance this fall to coach high school soccer for the first time at the high school where I played in Connecticut. And it was just wow. it was a it was a three month season, and certainly not you know a Division One or a pro level by any means. But even in three months, just to see from the beginning of the year, maybe a kid that's that's really shy and by the end of the year he comes out of his shell and you can see how much more comfortable he is and just something as small as that it can really be rewarding and I can see why you enjoy those types of things as coaches and why in some respects those types of memories probably last longer than the individual wins and losses 
Oh, there's no question about it. There's no Michael. Is, and, and, and again, you don't want to sound too corny about it, but but it's the truth. I mean, who remembers ten years ago who won the UCLA USC game? Right. Right. <laughs> I tell you what. Every Father's Day, I get a I, I get a I get an email from a, a player that I coached in, at USC, wishing me a happy Father's Day. I mean, till today. Yeah. And that's way way more important than who won that ball game, right? I mean, because you don't. But but at the time, it's important and it should be. You know, you need to give it every ounce of energy that you have. But in the in the long run, in the in the big picture, just like you said, the, the fun part is is the relationships that you make, and obviously you're enjoying that coaching soccer as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'd be remiss here toward the very end of our show if I didn't ask you about the XFL, and I know you had an absolute blast doing that with uh, you know with Winston Moss and Jerry Glanville and the Los Angeles Wildcats. And I just you know I know the league fell short in terms of the funding and, and things like that, and the and the pandemic made it difficult as well. But you know how much fun was it just to be part of uh, a unique environment like that, and and with a group of players that are just as hungry as they can possibly be because they want that one chance in the NFL uh, it was it was it was fantastic it really was and and, and like just like you say uh, uh, the people that were involved you know I really felt like he was going to make it and I think everybody felt that way other than because of the you know the COVID and the pandemic that that hit uh, because they, it was what surprised me the most and I didn't know Winston he just texted uh, emailed me out of the clear blue he was in LA he said hey would you can you get the guests get together? He was in a hotel up in Los Angeles, so we did that. And what a marvelous guy that was! I mean, it took all about two minutes to realize the passion that he had for what he was about to undertake. So it was fun going with him. But but what impressed me the most was just what you said at the end: the players, you know, realize it's it's one chance, maybe a one last chance to, to get myself on tape for the NFL. So the the, the, the players were, you know, the, the 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 relationship with the players was nothing. It was easy because uh, uh, they all realized how fortunate they were to get one last chance to do it, you know, and, and it, it made it an awful, awful lot of fun. And, and again, what's uh, that plus the fact that the schemes, I was impressed with the schemes. The caliber of football was pretty good, was darn good, actually, uh, you know, the, the, to try to play against a Jerry Glanville. Oh, my gosh, you know, and and. That kind of things made it made a lot of fun. Made it a lot, a lot of fun. Now I hope they get it back going again. I really do because it gave a lot of players one last opportunity to to, to try to prove themselves. Yeah, um, and even for even for the ones that you know probably knew they weren't going to get a shot, it was still a chance for them to to do something with their career after college from a football standpoint and do it on national television and and have a little of that experience. And I just I remember watching it and I thought it was really fun and really cool. And Jerry Glanville was the the first guest I had on this podcast when I started it up oh. <laughs> at the beginning of the year. And and Jerry's telling all these great stories about you know just the amount of communication that you could have up until the snap and and all the extra rules and things and it's just it sounded like for coaches for guys that you know again you talk about the pressure of the NFL and in some cases the pressure of college which I know you've noted at USC felt kind of like the NFL in certain ways and so to have this yeah. kind of stress-free fun environment I, I, I it just sounded like it was so rewarding for for all people involved it, it really was it, it really was I can't say enough about that and you know you you know people that you see on the street or whatever and they enjoyed that 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 the television and you know hearing all the nonsense you know calling a play and having the interaction between a coach and a player and and all that kind of stuff. I think people really really enjoyed that, 
and it and it was it was fun for them and it was fun to see it and oh I'll, I'll tell you one story we had we have a court we had a quarterback one of my favorite quarterbacks you know never gets mentioned Josh Johnson he's yeah. now with the 49ers so we're playing a game and and I guess they catch us and he says something oh something about me and all that kind of stuff so after the game on my way home my son and my wife said hey Josh got after you on the on the TV and I said really you know so. I said, I tell you what's going to happen. Josh is going to call me before I get home, and sure enough, he found out about it. He called me on the phone. We laughed about it. You know, he is competitive. Everybody's in the competitive spirit, and, and he said something. Oh, quit arguing or something, and did call play whatever, whatever. And uh, he laughed about it. We laughed about it. I said, Josh, I've been called a lot worse than that in my life. So don't <laughs> worry about it. Whatever I was called, but it was it was just that fun way of, of doing things you know that that uh that that it was so enjoyable to see and to have and and, and again the caliber of football was darn good it was darn good and i so that's why i hope they get that thing going back again and winston winston was special to work for as well he was uh you know very excitable and it was his first opportunity to be head coach and he enjoyed that yeah, you know, it was a lot of fun, and it would be really cool if it uh, if it was brought back at some point. Well, you know, Norm, I've, I've taken up more than an hour of your time here, and I can't thank you enough for being so generous with some of these stories and talking a little ball. I know I had an absolute blast, and I know the listeners are going to enjoy it as well. And uh, I'm really glad we were able to connect, and, and hopefully we can uh, we can do it again sometime. Well, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays, and stay well. So there you have it, a conversation with the great Norm Chow. I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. There were so many stories that I loved hearing about from Norm. I just couldn't wrap my mind around the idea of the BYU coaching staff being uncertain about whether or not they even wanted to bring Steve Young to campus because they, they couldn't tell if he was good enough based on the uh, what I imagine was probably low-grain quality film back then, um, you know, of, of his high school playing days here in Connecticut, where I'm recording this podcast now. And, you know, there was just so many more interesting things to hear about, you know, the story where they, they installed the zone read with Vince Young for one game against the Colts. And it worked amazingly until Tony Dungy figured it out, explained it in game to his defense, what was happening, and then they completely shut it down. Or the story about Kevin Mawai taking notes, you know, a Hall of Fame guy taking notes in the front row on Saturday night meetings in the NFL. Just all these behind-the-scenes stories that, you know, those are the reasons why I do this podcast because A, it's fun for me and I learn a lot, but B, I know that as fans and as listeners, that's the kind of stuff I would want to know. And so I hope that you guys really enjoy it. Again, it's a lot of work that goes into the show in terms of finding a guest, doing the research, mixing and editing all the audio myself and getting it ready for production. Um, And so I'm, again, very thankful and grateful for all the listeners that we have. And I hope that if you enjoy the show, you'll, you'll give us a rating preferably five stars on an Apple device if you like the program. And feel free to spread the word to family, friends, anyone you think might enjoy the show, because the more people that listen, the more rewarding it is for me to put this all together. So thank you all very much, and until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. 